the subject for the evening talk is uh, the waiting mind. <coughs> Since uh, some time in the uh, mid-1980s, on my twice-a-year visit to uh, IMS on the Wednesday afternoons, I go to uh, give a talk at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center and it's always a uh, delight to go there and d a delight to get away from here in fact <laughs> and in going to uh, to uh, C CIMC I of course meet with a number of uh, uh, friends there and the spiritual director of uh, the, the center there Larry Rosenberg close friend of IMS and a guiding teacher here um, was away from the centre. His father died on just a couple of days ago on April the 24th, peacefully at the age of 90 in Amherst, not so uh, far from here. And I'm sure all of us send our condolences and our love to Larry and family and friends and to the many, many, many people who have experienced and benefited considerably from his teachings and uh, his presence. <clears throat> and in, before speaking, in fact, at CIMC, I was um, also asked to speak to some students at the Northeast uh, University in uh, Boston and uh, law students. And, of course, one knows and hears of these situations with some uh, regularity and getting very first-hand from young committed people with regard to uh, law, it rather disturbed me as uh, possibly it does to you, the kind of financial circumstances in which they find themselves in. And what I was hearing from a number of them is the very substantial debts that they have to go into for a very long period of time and then the kind of going through the university with all the pressures and demands upon them intellectually and many other forms and then going out of the university finding themselves saddled with an utterly unacceptable condition of a major debt running into tens and tens of thousands of dollars as they were expressing to me and then being expected to pay that off. And is it any wonder that people, in this case students, faced with those situations do have to think a great deal about money, do obsess and experience anxiety about it. And in an odd sort of way it reminded me of a very strong parallel with Bihar in India. And the parallel that came to my mind, a place which I um, know as well as any Westerner, and that is in Bihar, one has bonded labor. And bonded labor is a situation where families, men and women, found themselves in debt, usually because the crops didn't come at the right time in the season, they couldn't eat, so they borrowed from the wealthy landlords and in that found themselves in debt and that debt went on for years and years and so they were never free from 
that debt controlled and dominated by the landlord who was constantly waiting for the debt to be paid. And it occurred to me in talking with these students for an hour, hour and a half yesterday, you know, is there that much difference? Is it that students are going into debt and then find themselves as bonded servants, bonded laborers to the corporate world, to the government which refuses to take its share of responsibility for its citizens, and all the unsatisfactory and utterly unwelcome <coughs> pressure. And as one student commented to me in sp when I was speaking to her, she said, I'm going to be paying off thousands of dollars for what seems like the rest of my life. And is it any wonder that I'm just thinking about, firstly, whether I can get a job, and secondly, if I do get a job, can I get a job which will get me enough money to pay off, the, pay off this debt? And I hear the same voice from bonded uh, labour in India. How am I going to pay off this debt? All of that needs whatever voice of concern, at the minimum, voice of protest, secondly, and perhaps a more radical voice of protest to simply people to get together and absolutely refuse to pay it. To actually join together and say no to the corporate world, to the banks, to the universities, to the public sector, to the private sector, and say no, and let them get on with it. So all of, all of there's enough pressures in life in just the formidable aspects of existence itself without the system entering into the hearts and minds of people and, and making them so subservient and all the unhappiness that can emerge from that. Of course it's a different ball game for people who have wealthy and wealthy parents and, and writing out large checks is uh, nothing more than a blink of an eye. But there are many, obviously, who are simply not in those uh, circumstances and as long as we are isolated and separated from each other and not cooperating together then this shameless situation will go on and it's, it's a, a situation if I may say pretty well unique to North America in comparison say with Europe. In that we have waiting mind and, and waiting things for, to be over, to be finished with, to, to end of course in many, many forms, and that's just one particular demonstration uh, of it. And sometimes it can show itself equally in um, uh, other forms um, as well. But it's all a kind of um, movement in the inner, inner life which expresses some unrest with the here and now uh, situation. And in that um, unrest, one wishes it for it to be over. Sometimes it's the more dramatic, ex dramatic expression in one's personal life. There's, there's a difficulty which is going on and one doesn't know what the outcome will be. Whatever, one's committed some uh, uh, offence, one is waiting for a job or waiting to be accepted in, into a university or whatever and it's bothering the mind. Or one has been to a uh, the hospital to see the physician and one is waiting for the results of a medical test. Whatever, you and I could think of countless examples. And in that, there's the actuality that our life persisting and continuing from moment to moment. 
and there's that kind of niggling, repetitive thought which keeps arising and it's wanting to know or wanting to get the result or wanting to find out what the actual outcome will be of the circumstances, whatever they may be. And sometimes that pressure and that uh, movement that's going on, on inside doesn't give, understandably, any kind of rest. I just want to find out what will happen, when will it be over, when will it be finished, when will I know, when will I get assurance. And that movement of thought from present to, to future in the waiting thought, shall we say, in the, and the emotion, is one of the strongest, has, can have potentially one of the strongest impacts on our emotional and psychological life. And probably you and I can think of various circumstances in our life where we have been gripped with the waiting mind and waiting for something to, for the outcome to come about and hoping, of course, on the one side, as one person uh, mentioned in a note to, to me today, waiting on the one side with, with hope and yet fearing the worst and therefore the possibility of despair. So there's, there's the arising of the thought, there's the movement from the feeling life to, towards that, there's a relationship there, and our world can then be built up on, on fear and hope. And it becomes a paramount form of influence um, in, in our day-to-day -day life and in our whole relationship to time itself. But what we may not be aware of in that waiting mind which is arising, we think, as I've said on other occasions during the, earlier in the week, that it's all kind of um, coming and emerging out of the present. But what we haven't realized and haven't appreciated that the relationship that you and I have to the future can easily be as formed as much by the past. We think the present is forming how I look at the future. But the, the, the potency of the future and the significance of the future is equally formed by the force of the past. The past tendency, the past interest, the past identification, if you will, the past karma. And all of that movement gives tremendous solidity, where there's a lot of it, of the past, of the present and of the future. And thus, our world becomes rather narrowly, in, uh, in some respects, defined and rather exclusively defined by past, present and future. And we think that we're picking out one, in the future, somewhat separately from the circumstances of the force or the push that's going on in the past and, from the, and in the present. One only has to sit surely in meditation to have a little sense of what I mean which can so easily and so often be a barometer for our entire existence. We sit and a little period of time goes by and then there's, and perhaps if one's lucky enough, there's a little bit of comfort in the first minutes of the sitting. And then a little longer goes by, and then there's a little unrest there, whatever, something is beginning to niggle 
or hurt or uh, itch or cause a pain or whatever it might be. And then a little time goes by and then one can't cope with it. And in the moment that we can't cope with it, of course, then we see that the outlet and the exhaust valve for that pressure is the future acting like a vast open space and we say the future will begin in decent terms at the end of the sitting. <laughs> <laughs> and between now and that point in, point in uh, time one feels one has to endure. So one may have made a commitment in the past I'm going to sit through this, heaven and hell as it might be. <laughs> Movement in time goes on. It creates a pressure in the moment of the, of the present. In the pressure of the present, one can't handle it. It causes another movement, and that movement goes into the space called the future. And between the present and the future is the waiting. And the stronger the force of the waiting, the more intolerable the here and now directly proportioned to the amount that one is waiting is in accordance with the amount of um, difficulty that one has with the here and now. And this force of the past into the present, into the future, can become the framework of our existence. And sometimes we're daft enough to call it living in the real world. And we see that that can apply, in fact, in terms of the waiting mind and all that goes with it, to anything. If you and I take the concept uh, work, for example, which basically is just a uh, four-lettered word, like a few others we know, <laughs> and in taking the word and there's that relationship to activity. But what happens to the experience of work when the waiting and therefore the wanting mind invades and infects it? Then it goes from work, it gets substantiated, it gets re reinforced, and one is just waiting for the end. Then work becomes work. And we think it's exclusively related to W-O-R-K. But work becoming an issue in our life, becoming a problem, becoming a stress in our life, becoming a hassle in our life, is the waiting aspect. Either waiting in terms of, I want just, it's Monday morning, I hate Monday mornings, and the only thing I can look forward to is Friday at 5 o'clock, and to get out of work. So the waiting reinforces the reactivity, has the negative tone that goes with it, and as we see the look of despair that fills people's lives, and whether one is in the classification of being blue-collared worker, pink-collared worker, white-collared worker, or whatever, one can say, oh, Monday, oh no, another day of work, Friday, ah, oh, let it be over with, momentary relief, and oh no, back on Monday morning, and then back into the grindstone uh, 
again. Is it any wonder that three-month retreats at IMS are so popular? <laughs> <laughs> of course one can have the same thought at six o'clock in the morning, I remember it here as well. <clears throat> so that movement that goes on of consider of relationship of present into future can have pressure and it makes a problem out of lots of circumstances in life. And obviously with work itself, I was just referring to work which we have. What about work which we don't have? What about when we're self-employed and the world is not absolutely desperate for our services and genuinely feels it can get on quite well without us and <laughs> makes a very good point of showing it? And so in the absence of the waiting can be, I want other people to acknowledge me, I want other people to employ me, I want other people to pay me, or, or whatever it might be. And so the waiting factor, as I say, infects and builds up the whole concept of work, or study, or whatever it might be, being in a relationship, being out of a relationship, or whatever. So to contemplate, to observe, to experience, to explore the waiting and wanting, wanting mind there that, that goes on in that. Could we, as it were, rescue the simple actualities of life from this force of waiting and wanting? Last, um, oh, just about um, a year, isn't personal front for a moment, just about um, a year ago, I, uh, at Guy, Guy House, we were just in the, we started a, a fundraising campaign to, to move from the old Guy House to a new, um, uh, a new place. It's a kind of sign of the times in, uh, in the West that we're moving from um, a vicarage, a vicarage, it means a um, um, home for Anglican priest, to um, a convent. Uh, <laughs> and I that says as much about Christendom as it, as it does about the, the Dharma world, in a way. And at a committee meeting about a year, a year ago, uh, a year, 13 months ago, actually, um, we were exploring fundraising ideas. And one of those fundraising ideas Somebody said to me, oh, Christopher, you like uh, running. And I think it, it, might, it actually started off here. In fact, Larry um, Ro Rosenberg was uh, something of the inspiration in that in my first visit here in 1977, Larry and I had met, and I had mentioned to him that when in my monk's days we had 227 precepts to observe, and one of those was... Um, one wasn't allowed to run and part of this it was regarded as being um, terribly unkosher to, for a monk to be seen running in his robes flying in the wind <laughs> especially as another rule said that we weren't allowed to wear anything underneath them <laughs> <laughs> so having gone from living in a no-running regime through those years, 
And so Larry took me off to the New Balance uh, factory, which was just outside Boston at that time, and the running phase was just getting uh, underway. And I remember I had my first 100-yard run down the, the road out here, renamed Unpleasant Street. And, and during this committee meeting we, we had, I, um, somebody said in the committee, look, Christopher, I've got a good idea for a fundraiser. Why don't you run a half marathon? And I, um, I said, really stupidly, I said, why do things by half? And, <laughs> and ended up volunteering myself to run and train for a marathon. And ended up running this Berlin uh, marathon that last September. And there were um, a smaller race than your recently run Boston Marathon, who, uh, and I th to me, uh, the, 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 the whole story, as some of you will know, of Uta Pippigs, who is from Berlin, winning the women's Boston Marathon um, while, um, while experiencing uh, uh, the time of the month and, and, and uh, cycle of, of bleeding and keeping the, the running going and winning the race. I thought it was just a fabulous story of uh, um, triumph over difficulty and not being uh, stopped and caught up in a lot of self-consciousness, which understandably would affect in case, many, many women. And she just kept going and the crowd kept supporting her. And I thought it was uh, fabulous, just fabulous. And Uta won the uh, uh, Berlin um, uh, Marathon. And I remember seeing her, I'm going off on a tangent here, I'll get back to the waiting <laughs> game. So, I understand if you're waiting around to get, for me to get to the point. <laughs> and um, actually I had some inspiration from um, Uta and I. We, 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 we both have something in common and that's um, skinny legs. Uh, uh, so in this, when I was running this marathon, which was I chose um, Berlin because it's the, the flattest marathon I could find. <laughs> and while, while, while running it, it, it did remind me of stories I hear of people on retreats. And that one starts off in a in retreat and then one, or through a sitting or whatever the duration of time is. And it's going along uh, quite well. And then it begins to get a bit harder. And when it gets a bit, bit harder, the thought arising, oh, well, you know, just not so long to go, and how long to go, etc. And it gets a little bit harder still. And I notice um, at the 30-kilometer, 20-mile mark, when they, you hit this famous wall that one uh, hits, that, uh, oh, God, one doesn't even believe in God, but one starts praying and one... <laughs> You know, how much further there is to go. And as each kilometre, each mile um, went by f further and further, then you know, the doubts start to come in, in the mind. I don't need to be doing this. And, and, and I could just stop. And, you know, I, I've, I've, I'm running p per mile. I've done 22 miles. It's quite it. I've raised enough money. Why should I bother <laughs> for these... Perhaps I could raise the dana and just stop the race and find the money myself. <laughs> so all these thoughts are running through, through the mind. They're just as one waits for, for, waits for the end and one's looking at others who are running alongside oneself and thinking, oh, oh my God, that one starts to feel meta. I feel bad, but this 
guy running it. <laughs> He's going to drop dead in a minute. <laughs> so all, all, all this is going on during, during this, and then f finally one gets to the final, final mile, having run around every damn street in Berlin. <laughs> and you s see, the, see the finishing. Talk about gateway to Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> Never is there such a relief, those of you who ever run, when you actually see the end and you think, finally, it's over. And, and that, that feeling at the end, despite all the tiredness and the utter ex ex exhaustion and swearing black and blue, I'll never do this again. <laughs> and one reaches reach the end, and there's a, a, a thrill and an exhilaration you, and, uh, and the de delight and the completion and the satisfaction in this case of having raised $10,000 for Guy House to go along with it. And I just use it as an example that we're moving sometimes through something. Yes, there's the thoughts arising, the waiting is arising, <coughs> the doubt, <coughs> pardon me, is arising. The tiredness is arising, etc., etc. One is look, looking around and wondering how others are doing, etc. But something is, whatever it feels, valid and authentic and genuine with it, and it's worth dealing with all of that for something else. And in a way, the marathon is a, a metaphor, as a fact, and as a metaphor for numerous other situations in, in our life. And I said to the one of the young women, uh, uh, the law, one of the young women in studying law, I, I s <coughs> said to her, easy to <coughs> pardon me, easy to say, and uh, I, I said, said to her, no matter what, if there is a debt, let there, let there be the debt, let there be the fact of that debt which is showing, showing itself. But she said, but I said to her, remember, remember, law is concerned with justice. Not with profit, not with efficiency, not with productivity, not with corporate downsizing and all of that that's going on. It's concerned with justice. And keep the vision on the justice. Whatever you do, keep that focus there and with the debt, make it a much lesser priority in, in, in your life, if you can do, do that. And so sometimes there's something integral that you and I need to <coughs> touch, need to keep faith with, need to keep deep contact with as much as possible, and need to move <coughs> in the company and the support of like-minded people. So those deep things matter more than the conventionalities and the demands so that we don't become bonded servants to anybody or anything. And therefore I say, we endeavour to look at one form that we can get in bondage to, and one of course can be into waiting, which overshadows sometimes everything else. Everything else. One of the experiences that uh, do, does arise, it gets referred to regularly on, uh, on retreats, 
is um, the experience that can, can go on in which something happens for us, it touches us in some way, and it brings out feelings, and what I've got in mind here sometimes, feelings of uh, guilt, feelings of uh, shame, feelings which seem exaggerated in the face of the circumstances. I wonder, why do I feel this? Why, 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 why is this going on? And in our looking and in our exploring that to keep the heart open and to keep working with these things, to keep a, a, an awareness which is embracing alive, we sometimes say, well, it's, um, it's socialized values. And some of you will think perhaps of, of um, um, e e examples. One has lived with very religious Orthodox parents and they have said um, before two people can live together they have to be married and on, upon that point is satisfactory. I'm just using this as a simple outer example and some of you will know this. And then that son or daughter meets somebody, they decide to live together and then they're beset with feelings of guilt and shame. We shouldn't be doing this. And where did that come from? Socialized, the parental forces or whatever. And it can trigger some emotions which go on inside of us. And many other circumstances. And in Dharma teachings, the Buddha's referred to this with a lot of frequency. And what he has spoken of is, in the Pali language, is called Hiri and Otapa. And Hiri is, we have engaged in something and it's produced some um, unpleasant, unwelcome fe feeling. And as I, I bought a CD I, when I was in Cambridge yesterday, which my daughter and I like, I forget the name of the singer. Do you remember the shadow? Um, and anyway, oh God, what the hell's her name? Um, but Regardless of the name, it's less important. She has a great one-liner in one of her uh, rock songs. She says, um, I've got enough guilt inside of me to start a religion. And, <laughs> and I should buy it just on for that fact. Anyway, if I think of a name, I'll let you know. Thank you. Tori Amos. Tori Amos. Tori Amos. And so sometimes there is a reaction which takes place and in that reaction, some negativity or whatever, or guilt or shame, um, starts. And then the mind says, I shouldn't. I shouldn't feel guilty. Why do I feel guilty? I haven't done anything so bad, I haven't done anything wrong, yet I'm still feeling all, all of this. And, of course, the mind's attention will go to socialized values, to past values, or, or whatever. But it can be a, a, um, a misdirection of attention. And so sometimes, in all that's taking place, which is called the hiri factor, the shame factor, or the guilt feeling factor, or, or whatever it might be, if we can enter quietly, without pressure, into that particular feeling which is arising out of us, perhaps somewhere inside of that particular feeling, there is some insight and something of value which can be discovered. Sometimes we want to make a change in our life. Some of you have been speaking about it in the hall, in small groups or whatever. 
And this particular feeling of shame or guilt or whatever is so predominant that it's not allowing us the opportunity to see clearly. It's such a powerful emotion to experience. And part of it sometimes is that not always so easy to share and to talk about and communicate with others, and all credit to those of you who do. And with it, it keeps it all rather hidden in there. And to say, can we just explore that sometimes within ourselves or shared in whatever ever way to look a bit more clearly to see well, what, what do I need to understand from this? So we're not living in shoulds, not living and being identified with feeling bad or whatever, yet not becoming arrogant and saying, I don't need to feel bad. Why should I feel bad? I am who I am, or whatever the arrogant tone that can come out. So not identifying with the one hand, not rejecting and undermining with the other, knowing that it's a form of harsh expression, listening attentively and carefully to see what's the insight that can come. What do I need to understand through this feeling? Which can be obscuring and hiding some deeper truth. When that comes clear, one has ihiri, that's the, 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 the shame aspect, and when that comes clear, it can provide the truth or the insight and the understanding which one makes one naturally more aware of situations and circumstances in life, in the future, which could provoke that all over again. About anything. Sometimes something happens and we have a, a milder form of shame, a milder form of guilt. It's called embarrassment. And somebody makes a comment to us. Or one is very embarrassed about um, one feature of one's body. Or about some circumstances in which one is. And it becomes part of that easy, that hidden world. Or somebody says something to us and we are suffused with redness, we blush, we feel very uncomfortable, we swear, that we feel very, 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 very difficult. And naturally enough, we just want that embarrassment, which is a kind of mild form of shame, to disappear as quickly as possible, because we don't want that kind of feeling. And when it disappears, we're very glad for it to be over with. We don't want to go back to it. But, unfortunately, the wish and the gladness that it's over with doesn't give any protection for the future. We have to look directly at what we feel embarrassed about. And we have to look carefully into that feeling, into that contact, into that association, and explore that, either with ourselves or another, and see, uh, is there a way that can be with this situation, clear, focused, with integrity, and not feel embarrassed about it. So that those kind of emotional signals which emerge unexpectedly from the depth inside of ourselves in what we do or what we say or who we are, whatever way, does take, is taken as a real opportunity to really look with care. And it's almost a signal 
for you and I to stop and be still and say, I need to look at that. How do I know that? Because the emotion of shame has told me. The emotion of guilt has told me. The emotion of embarrassment has told me. The emotion of sweating and feeling uncomfortable and all of that has told me. The, the, the experience and the thought of wanting to be away from this, wanting to, this to be over, not wanting to deal with this, is telling me, hey, stop, stop, look, 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 quick. And all of that can bring, in our relationship to life, to others and ourselves, a degree of what we might call emotional maturity. But it won't happen for you and I unless we are willing and be prepared to stop and question and look and look again at some of those areas in life which we prefer not to look at because the emotion is wanting to push us away from it. So the manifestation of the waiting, whether it, for it to be over, waiting to reach and to, to get to, may act as a real hindrance and a blockage for some real insights into our life and into our relationship to life. And as, we, as I say, probe more deeply than the heart opens up considerably. And the extraordinary and wonderful thing about all, all of that is that sometimes we say, well, there are so many things in life which make me feel uncomfortable. There are so many things in life which I find such difficulty in, 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 de in dealing with. And if I put my mind to it, I could list loads of things which are problematic. But in a certain kind of way, they're all very much interrelated. And so what that can mean is that sometimes the penetration of the eye of seeing into one area actually is the clue and the insight and the liberation for all the else. See through one thing and sometimes the understanding and the dissolution comes with everything. It's not as though we have to piecemeal-like treat one problem after the other in succession and work with lots. Because they're all wrapped up in how we feel, how we think, how we view, how we experience, how we interpret. So all keeps pointing to discoveries and realizations which are genuinely liberating. In, finally, all, all of that and working uh, with that, as I say, a key factor, just to repeat and remind a little here, a key factor is the ability to stop and be still. It's a kind of indispensable feature of it. And so often in the instructions and the teachings which are being offered and uh, gi given here, when one takes away all the outer circumstances, it is stop, be still and be awake. Stop, be still and be awake. Stop, be still and look, look again. And that arresting of that, in a way, if we talk about our grace, grace in life, that's our saving grace. Because unless we find opportunities and situations to stop, as I said before, the movement and the force of the old, called karma, 
in uh, Dharma language, keeps moving, keeps putting pressure on the present, and the pressure on the present keeps making the future something that we want to get to because we can't tolerate the pressure on the present. And quite often, there's not much pressure in the present. Sometimes there is, and of course there is. But quite often, there's no pressure in life like the pressure of the force of the past on, on, on the here and now. And that, as I say, doesn't have, since it's made up of pictures, stories, images, ideas, whatever, has no real substance to it. There's no real substance. It, how could that be compared, in fact, with the potency and the immediacy and in, in the depth, the magnificence of all this which is here and now? So when we're considering the movement of the past which exerts pressure on the present and then pushes us into the future, that movement of the past really is small change compared with what the present is, what the here and now is. And so there are moments, and plenty of you have reported moments and haven't reported moments, when you know there's no pressure in your life. You're here, you're just sitting, you're not waiting for something to start, you're not waiting for it to be over, there's no waves of painful, unpleasant emotions going on inside, there's no feeling of issues pressing on your life from yesterday or yesteryear and you have a genuine, authentic, valid sense, valid perception of existence without problem. Existence without anguish, without pain. And that valid, authentic perception and experience, whether it's for a moment or successive moments, is much more significant than what one thinks. Its, its, its significance is because it's, as it were, warmed by and, and correspondingly receptive to something which is unshakably steady. In a way which forces, in this case past forces, and all the disturbance and interruption cannot be. And so sometimes when you know there is the experience in the moment of no demand upon yourself from life around you, no demand from within yourself upon your life and the here and now, so there's no demand anywhere. And when there's a feeling, a sense, a, a tangible sensitivity and qualitative sense about it, in that Please, please rest. Never mind about method, technique, form, um, uh, and all that goes with it. Never mind about meta practice. Never, never mind about doing it right or doing it wrong or whatever. Never mind if your hands are straight in your lap or if they're lopsided or whatever it might, might be that you fuss over. In that time, when there's no demand on life, no demand upon yourself, not seeing it, not hearing it, not feeling and not thinking. Abide. Let there be an abiding there. Thought may come and say, 
I can't see the significance of it. Just don't get it. <laughs> there's got to be something more than this, or what, whatever, whatever it might be, and the thought will corrupt it all. Because the old mind is at work. And thought is the old mind at work. So when one takes no notice of the thought, just doesn't give it the time of day, doesn't treat it with any, serious, any seriousness, whatsoever, one keeps true to the raw, bare experience of undemanding existence. And rest there. Let one rest there. And let that rest in sitting, in walking, in life, be familiar and known and tangible and, uh, and an abiding there. And in that abiding, all things come to peace. In that abiding, one is at rest. And in that rest, one knows that truth which is indivisible. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings understand calm abiding. May all beings live with wisdom. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? <laughs>